On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Spoon. And Spoon is a survivor of online grooming which resulted in a life of abuse cycles. It's a story of generational trauma, predators, addiction, self-worth, and abusive relationships. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Spoon. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am doing well. And if you want to be a guest like Spoon is today, please go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And for today's episode, we have a big content warning for child sexual assault in this episode. Spoon was groomed online. And we also discuss suicidal ideation, but there is a graphic description on how Spoon wanted it to happen. So a big content warning once again for this episode. So with Spoon, with today's episode, Spoon's story, it's not a traditional family story or relationship episode. It is really like a trauma lifetime episode. And we discuss how family issues reverberate and how the assault reverberates throughout Spoon's life. Spoon eventually does fall into in an abusive relationship. And there's just a lot of stuff that happens along the way. So this episode It doesn't have the relationship as its main focus today because Spoon really wanted to share her story and have it focus on her worth, uh, how everything around her shaped her beliefs on what it is to be a woman and trying just to figure out who she is as a person and all the trauma that is involved with all of it and all the unfortunate experiences that went with it. So now with all that being said, I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Spoon, the floor is now yours. Thanks for having me on the show. I uh, am going to be talking about cycles of of abuse that I have been involved in in my life. And obviously the best place to start with explaining that is my childhood. So I grew up Um, with two parents who did love us very much, but they had a really complicated relationship. Um, I have memory where my mom would basically put us down and say, like, we're going to get divorced. And everybody would start crying, and my dad would start crying, and then it wouldn't happen. And then that would kind of happen uh, however much time later. And then it wouldn't happen again. And what I found out later on in my life is that she she had basically found out that he was addicted to porn and was wrestling with whether to essentially like forgive him for this or not. And that there was also, there were some elements of abuse going on as well, according to her, you know, but um, my dad has his own side of the story. Either way, it was very tumultuous. My mom was not the most emotionally regulated person in general. And so when um, the day that they ended up divorcing, 
I have a memory of a guy like walking around the parameters of our house and doing construction stuff. And I didn't really like know what he was doing. And then we were woken up in the middle of the night that night to my mom having suitcases packed for us and the cops were outside. And my dad was like sitting in his car and we couldn't say bye to my dad. And my mom basically like ordered us out to our vehicle and he was crying. And what I found out later is that she had had all the locks changed on all the doors. And my dad had home and thought maybe she had hurt us. I didn't really understand what was going on. So he tried to break in through the basement and she had called the police. And I just think that's kind of like a strange way to try to lead somebody. But again, I don't have all the pieces to like what was going on in their relationship. But that was that was kind of like weird and upsetting. And so they got divorced. And what it kind of turned into was both my parents, it became very much about them. So they just sort of entered into this competition of who do you love more? And if we loved my dad more, it upset my mom. And if we loved my mom more, it upset my dad. And so we felt like we weren't really allowed to express any kind of affection for the other parent while we were in the presence of whomever we were in the presence of. And so it caused all of us to start walking on eggshells around both of them. And obviously, when you're in that position, what that really does to the child is it puts the parent's needs before the child's needs. And so a lot of us learned to sort of put our feelings on the shelf and not make it not about us at all. And it was very much about them instead. And so that's where I first learned that emotional habit of my emotional needs come second to somebody else's not really examining what I was feeling because I needed to regulate and pump both my parents first. They came first and I came second. And so that was something that was very much laid out for me and my childhood of what was normal for uh, an emotional relationship and an emotional dynamic. On top of the fact that my mom was a full-time nurse and she really needed my sister and I to step up and basically become uh, child parents, essentially. So... I wasn't really allowed to do extracurricular activities after school. I didn't really have time to like hang out with friends after school. On top of that, they also wanted us to be very sheltered. Their idea of protecting us was to keep our body physically at home. They didn't understand how someone can affect your mind. That, you know, even if you have the body safe, the mind can be affected uh, by, by people as well. And so I just wasn't really allowed out of house. We weren't allowed to watch a lot of mainstream movies. I wasn't allowed to listen to mainstream music. I just had no exposure really to much at all. I was in public school, but outside of that, those few hours, you know, I felt very abnormal from everyone else. And so that also was another way that I was very vulnerable as a child. I think children are vulnerable in general, but I felt very abnormal to the people around me. I didn't really understand how to make small talk with them, how to approach conversations with them. So I felt very lonely. My way of dealing with it, because I'm the second oldest, my my older sister, she really stepped up. She was great at cooking, great at sewing, great at basically being a child parent. And I was not good at being a child parent. I got very angry. I lashed out a lot. I was rebellious. I fought back against it. If something didn't make sense to me, it really upset me. And I would question it a lot. And I would, I would just push back a lot in general. And so there was a lot of contention between me and my mom. I was kind of 
problem child in a lot of ways. So that's where I kind of was at in my mind and in my situation around me. That that kind of loneliness, that kind of frustration was going on when I found a free trial for a chat room on my flip phone that I had at the time. My story, you know, almost 20 years old now when I was 13. I'm uh, almost 32 now. And I had been on these role-playing forums for Harry Potter. They were kind of like writing activities, RPG forums, where you could get on and just sort of like practice being a character and it was creative and expressive. So that's how I understood role-playing. And so when I entered into this chat room, um, Dexter messaged me back and he said, yeah, let's chat. And it's not that I didn't understand that something there was the potential for danger, but my logic, my child logic, was that he didn't have access to my body. And I think a lot of people think this way sometimes, you know, he, so he couldn't physically hurt me. He was far away from me. He didn't know where I lived. So it could only be fun. It could only help me be less lonely. You know, it could only be a positive experience, essentially, because the dangerous part I, I had under control, right? So we started chatting. And I don't remember how soon after it was. Uh, it was within our first year of talking pretty pretty quickly afterwards that he sent me my first uh, porn video. And it was pretty graphic. And I had never, you know, even dated a boy. I'd never held anyone's hand. Um, never had any kind of dating experience. And when you think about molestation, you know, it really is skipping a lot of steps. And at least I'm feeling very confused, very dirty, very uncomfortable. Um, that's, that's kind of what the porn video did for me. So it left me feeling all of those things. And, you know, my parents didn't know that I was talking to this guy. This guy who was 30, in his early 30s at the time, and I'm 13. They have no idea. And I, I don't want to tell them. Of course, I don't want to tell them this is like someone who feels like my new best friend. You know, he... When people sometimes don't understand the predator relationship or the abuser relationship uh, in that honeymoon stage, you know, he was so comforting and he always listened to what it was that I was upset about. There are a surprising amount of similarities between how predators groom children and how narcissists and psychopaths groom their future partners as well. And that honeymoon stage is absolutely a thing with, with predators and children. So, you know, that was his sort of math-like personality that he presented where he was just a really good friend to me before everything started turning darker. So I uh, I didn't go to my parents when I saw the porn video to process that. I went to him. And I had already kind of, again, wondered if I was abnormal in some kind of way, wondered if there was something wrong with me because I was just an insecure teenager like many teenagers are. And so just like many abusers do, um, he saw an opportunity to begin kind of wearing down my confidence in myself, because I think sometimes that can be a goal for them is it makes sense, you know, to to really wear down your confidence that you don't question things that they say, so that they can control you easier, all that stuff. So he, he basically told me that because I had cried and because it made me uncomfortable that and I was probably a lesbian. Because normal straight girls don't react to material like that that way. They like it. And I believed him. 
I already felt so insecure about myself. There was nothing inside of me, I think, that had the ability to question it. I didn't have any of those tools in my toolbox to kind of question his judgment. He was older than me. It felt like he knew more about the world than me. It just made sense that he would know what he was talking about. So that kind of began the whole indoctrination process into there's something wrong with me, you know? And so that was a a three-year experience kind of talking to him going through that he used porn a lot to desensitize me to a lot of really uh inappropriate graphic elements of sex and so porn was really kind of instrumental in my how I learned to be a woman when I was younger on top of the fact that I again am not really getting much exposure to the world and so I also had a few movies that I was allowed to watch and that's also where I kind of turned to learn how to be um, a girl as well. So a lot of this is very fantasy-based. You know, it's not reality-based. And my parents didn't, neither of them dated after the divorce for a really long time. So I didn't really have many examples around me for what a long-term healthy relationship looked like. So a lot of this is based in fantasy of a narcissistic psychopathic person a lot of their fantasies aren't based in reality movies a lot of times aren't based in reality and porn wasn't based in reality so i had a very fantasy-like foundation for how i was supposed to approach the world so when i was 16 my mom kicked me out of the house um and i moved in with my dad and i experienced freedom for the first time my siblings and i would talk about like what it's going to be like when we get out of the house you know, that was like a whole conversation that we had because it was such a big deal for us that when we would finally taste that kind of freedom to feel that kind of like independence. And I think that's another part of it. I think parents mean well. They're just oh, sometimes they just become very afraid. I think my parents met well and they were just really scared and they didn't know what to do with that fear. But they them not allowing me to individualize myself and develop my own identity also it's an aspect of abuse. It normalized me to that aspect of abuse as well in some ways where I was like, oh, it's, it's normal that someone else doesn't let me form my own identity either, you know? So when I was 16, moved in with my dad and I got a car and now I have a vehicle and all these things that he and I had talked about, you know, meeting and falling in love and like all these fantasy-like things we talked about doing I now have the opportunity to do. And my parents didn't really talk to each other very much. So there was a weekend where I told my dad that I was going to go over to my mom's house. My mom and I weren't really talking at the time. And I drove down to Texas, which from the state that I live in is about a 12 or 13 hour drive. I had never even driven out of state before. And I just had panic attack, you know, but... I think my brain through the cycle of abuse that I've been in with him was already, it had already kind of been rewired. All all of these experiences kind of slowly rewire our brain. And my brain had already kind of become rewired to be desperate for that dopamine. So even though I'm having panic attacks and stuff like that, I really didn't mind that much because it was also exciting and I felt alive and I felt like I was finally living, you know? So it was, it was what it was. And I drove all night. I was using MapQuest printouts. You know, there were times where I didn't even know 
there would be business X's that had the same number as the one I was looking for, but they'd have like an A or a B or a C. I get confused about whether that was the one I was supposed to get off on or not. I smelled disgusting by the time I got down there um, because of all the panic attacks I'd had. There were toll booths. I was driving an F-150 truck that I didn't know if it was going to run out of gas. I didn't know when the next gas station was coming up. It was a whole thing. So I got down there. I left my truck at a gas station. Really horrible things happened all weekend. And then he let me go home, which today I'm kind of surprised by. I'm surprised that he let me go home, you know, but that was a moment that was so crazy for me because regardless of how everything happened, I really didn't think that I had been raped because everything that happened really matched a lot of the narratives that I had already seen in porn videos with, you know, the girl's needs not really mattering, the feelings not really mattering, the age different, and, and a lot of these other really kind of graphic elements. So when I was driving home, I, I was crying and I actually like kind of judged myself for crying because I did it. I really thought that I'd had a fairly normal sexual or sexual experience. I didn't really talk to anyone about it for a few months, but everyone could tell I was acting different. And I thought maybe I was just sad, you know, that I wasn't a virgin anymore. And I ended up uh, opening up to my mom about it. And she was the one who was like, no, you were 16. They, They had no idea I was talking to this guy the whole time, you know? And so she was the one who took me to the police. I ended up working with the FBI. He did get put away in prison. And I think everyone, including myself, thought, okay, hopefully you're good now, you know? But there were all of these ideas inside of me about how I was supposed to be a woman, about how I was supposed to approach relationships, which again, were not tethered to reality. And many of them were from a predatory, abusive person. So before we get to... To the next, you know, phase of your life, things that have kind of gone on here for you that are big themes to your whole entire life. Because this story, your story is not just a story of one relationship. This is about a lifetime of trauma that goes from one event to the other, how you're going to be walking through your life after this and things that you're experiencing. And... One of the themes for you is your worth. Uh, one of the themes for you is where was I going to learn about love or what is love? What is healthy love? And who are the storytellers around me? And those become, you know, things have been cemented here already at this age in a, in a huge way. And the repercussions of everything are, are going to be felt, you know, throughout your your life. And you went through this grooming stage already and have experienced that in every single stage that goes goes there. And, you know, after this unfortunate experience, you know, one of the things you kind of stated was that you, the people in the videos that you were watching, they're not being affected by things. So you're kind of going along in, in that manner as well. You're replicating what you've seen. The trauma is there, and this is what you think is the way to act. This is what's been modeled for you. So, you know, we, before this call, we had another call, 
and we talked about how you then became uh, the cool girl or what uh, in movies the other trope was, I think it was the manic uh, pixie girl or something along those lines. I think it might have been closer to the manic pixie girl. So can you explain to people what that is and how like all of what I just mentioned in this kind of take you into this next step of your life, which is like the ages of 17 to 23. Um, yeah, to talk about, you know, I didn't realize a lot of the stuff about like storytellers affecting my life. This is all what I can see in hindsight now. But what I do realize now is how much the cool girl, the cool girl trope, because I didn't know the word trope until talking to you, um, how much she held me hostage. And to sort of encapsulate what the manic pixie girl or cool girl trope for me was, because I think different types of cool girls appeal to, we have different tropes that resonate with all of us, right? Different characters that we've seen in movies that we go, wow, that's who I really want to be. It's almost like when you ask a girl who's your favorite Disney princess, they all have a different favorite Disney princess. And I think it's because different characteristics of what a strong woman is supposed to be, different things resonate with each of us. And so for me, the cool girl in my mind, especially filed with what I learned from the predator I was involved with, is somebody who didn't have a lot of emotional needs. She was just so tough and so independent and so strong that she never needed anything from a guy. And if anything, she could outman a man in the sense that she would need so much less than he ever would that he would fall in love with her because of that, right? So like with a lot of women, if a man plays cool and aloof, that makes us want them more in some ways. But that's not necessarily the true and re- true in the reverse. So I, I really thought I would beat myself up about having emotional needs of any kind. And I also wanted to be just as tough as possible, never afraid of doing anything that was cool in society, right? So more wild, more adventurous, just this kind of like adrenaline junkie who was down to do anything, never said no to anything, right? Because to say no to something is not cool. You need to always be down for whatever anybody in the room wants to do, which is so chaotic and dangerous because what anybody in the room wants to do changes depending on who's in the room. Everybody has different moral standards. Everybody has different expectations of what they think cool is. And so you almost have to become this shapeshifter, of course. And I wasn't very good at it at all. And so I was constantly failing at being the cool girl. It's how I would describe the next phase of my life, trying to be the cool girl and not doing a very good job at it because I would have emotional needs and I would want to fall in love. And I would be afraid of doing certain things that were risky and wild and adventurous. And I didn't know the word panic attack back then, but I I would have panic attacks. All I knew was that I felt like my veins were on fire and my hands were numb and I'd throw up. But I, I felt a lot of discouragement about that. And so for the next phase of my life, the I got out of the house phase with all of this freedom around me. That's really what I try to be. And I did want adrenaline and I did want adventure. It's not that I didn't, but I tried to pursue it through this lens of what I thought I was supposed to be like, instead of actually sitting down and saying, okay, what kind of person 
do I want to be? Just like asking myself that question in a more genuine way. And even just sitting and going, okay, what did I just go through for three years? I didn't really sit down and process that because I thought I got the gist of it. Somebody was kind of mean to me for three years. It resulted in rape. We get it. There's nothing else to really like look at here. I didn't want people's pity. So I didn't really talk about it. And it just stayed very unexamined. So yes, that was the next phase of my life was um, I went to community college. You know, I worked at Starbucks when I was 16. That was the first job that I got. And I worked with a lot of people who I didn't know at the time were alcoholics. So I was like drinking on the job, um, you know, in the back room with them. People were bringing like crazy laced weed to work because I would always work the night shift and I'd be like hallucinating, trying to make coffee, you know, and just crazy, crazy stuff. Um, and maybe it doesn't sound that crazy, but for me, for me, it was definitely pretty crazy. And at the same time, I'm trying to actually date people, right? I'm trying to be involved with people. And what I find consistently through this period of my life, when I first finally have the opportunity to date boys, is that if I meet a nice, stable boy, I find that I want so desperately to be attracted to them, but I can't be. And that also really makes me feel like there's something wrong with me all over again, because I can logically see that these are good men, good boys, they're boys my age but I couldn't feel attraction to them and it would make me feel bored. It would make me feel restless. I just, I just couldn't feel what I thought was attraction at the time. But what I understand now is that adrenaline inducing spark, right? Which is a very like different thing. I think in healthier relationships, attraction is built over time and you learn to enjoy each other like as actual people. And it's not about just like how you felt on that first date. And, and all that stuff that we're kind of taught to think. So at the age of 19, you decide to make a career choice. And that career choice was to start modeling. So tell us about this. Around 19, you know, I'd only been out of the house for about three years. Uh, my predator got put away when I was 18. So going through that whole process with the FBI and everything took a while. So I really was very fresh out of these experiences when I decided, you know what? I want to try modeling. Why not? And I started very local to where I live. But then I got the opportunity to actually pursue it in New York instead. And so, you know, after having explained everything that I just explained about myself, Obviously, to move into an industry where there's like a lot of power and a lot of people who have the potential to be predatory and potential to want to push you around and definitely want you to adhere to their moral standards, I was not the most equipped person. I think some women can go into it and have a completely different experience than I did. But for me, I was a very vulnerable person who didn't have the tools in my toolbox to know how to say no to things, to know how to know what I wanted on my own outside of the people in the room with me. And I was just really, really open to being exploited in a lot of ways that I didn't understand. So I went through that experience for three years again. My contract was for three years. I traveled around uh, lots of different countries, 
And the whole time I was thinking if I just do what everyone's asking enough, and I, I wanted to, it's not like I was sitting there like secretly resenting them. This was my normal. This was their normal. Asking me to get naked was their normal. Me getting naked was my normal. Um, but I really thought if I just did it enough, eventually everyone would like me, right? Which is so unrealistic because you can't please everyone. And and not just that, but that I eventually at some point would officially be the cool girl. And I would feel this kind of satisfaction inside where I was finally like myself. Eventually, if enough people liked me, I would like myself too. Because the whole time I have still felt abnormal. I have still felt insecure. I have still felt like there is something wrong with me. That indoctrination of there is, you're a deeply flawed woman who's a failure at being a woman was still in the back of my head at all times. And every time a man rejected me, I wondered if that was why. Every time I wasn't able to be in a successful relationship, I wondered if that was why it was just always there. So I ended up getting addicted to drugs, developing problems with alcohol. I didn't find the things that I was looking for in that. And I really hit a bottom with it, where by the end of it, I'd given myself away so much. And I tried to change myself over and over again so much. But I didn't even know who I was anymore. I was like a shell of myself in a lot of ways. And I remember one of my big things is that I really like making people laugh. That's a big deal for me. I enjoy having a sense of humor. I enjoy being able to laugh in the midst of like hardship and stuff. And I was such a shell of myself by the end of that that I I couldn't even remember the last time I told a joke. I couldn't even remember the last time I had actually had the ability to laugh. It was really bad. And so I decided to quit, which felt like me being a failure. It felt like I'd had the potential opportunity to become famous or make a lot of money. And I failed at that. And so I felt like I really had like peaked at 22 in my life. And there was nothing else I could ever do that would ever matter as much as being famous maybe could have. And that was devastating for me psychologically. On top of the fact that I'd had so many experiences that people couldn't really relate to. Not like I could go home and people be like, oh yeah, when I traveled to X country overseas and, you know, had these crazy experiences in a club with whatever, you know, like promoters trying to, to do creepy whatever. Like nobody could really relate to the things that I'd been through. So I moved back home and I once again, didn't really know how to relate to the people around me because I hadn't let myself learn that skill. I hadn't worked on learning that skill. I'd once again, let myself sort of exist in a more artificial environment for so long that wasn't based on like real ways of connecting that are more healthy. But it was, it was pretty cool because I started working at a restaurant And I did start learning some of those skills. I worked with people who, you know, they didn't have all the money in the world, but they would, they would give you the shirt off their back a lot of times. They were really kind. But once again, a lot of people in that restaurant struggled without alcoholism. And I have not started learning any of the skills of recovery. So I just sort of fell into that again because I was so depressed, because I was in such a dark place with myself and because I already had those those issues anyway. So it only took about a year after my career ended before 
the the depression was so dark that I just sort of woke up one day and I'd been thinking about it on and off for a few months. But there was a day where I woke up and I was like, I really don't want to be here anymore. I don't think there's anything I can contribute. There's nothing worthwhile going on in my life. I'm not a worthwhile person. There's nothing of like value going on here. And so I just, uh, my, I decided I was going to drive to a shooting range and I had never held a gun. So I was going to have them like teach me how to hold a gun and that I was going to like do it there. And while I was driving to the shooting range, I I was having extreme tunnel vision and this memory popped into my head that I never remembered before that moment from when I was 17. I was driving down the road with this kid I was trying to date at the time. And he pointed at this building and he said, that's where my ex-girlfriend went and she was suicidal. And the only way I can describe it is that when this memory came into my head, it almost gave me like a window in my tunnel vision to where I could realize for the first time that I did need to go get help. And so I actually drove to that suicide unit and they just happened to have this 30-day residential program, the only one in the country that moves around to different facilities and it just happened to be there when I got there and I ended up doing it which was not my plan at all. I thought I was going to go get a couple pills. Somebody was going to tell me something inspiring, some kind of inspiring quote, and then I was going to leave. But I ended up doing this program instead, and it completely changed my life. It was where I learned about sober houses. It was where I learned about potential for me to get sober and really started addressing some of these questions of, on the suicide unit, the question I really asked myself for the first time was, what do you consider an accomplishment? Because my definition of what an accomplishment was, was so unrealistic and so off the chart high that no one would ever feel like they accomplished anything unless they were like Beyonce or something, you know? So they really had me ask that question. And then also start asking myself, like, why did I, what, what did I expect myself to be as a woman? What kind of so that was the first place where I, I asked myself that in a tiny way of like, what kind of woman am I trying to be? And that was really impactful for me to just really turn inward for the first time and start looking at some of the stuff inside myself. So I'm, I'm forever grateful for that program. And I found a sober house and I called them and they said, we have one bed open. If you drive straight, like from the day or discharge, you just drive straight down and you can have this bed. So I literally like packed up a suitcase and was relocated to a different town almost overnight after I got discharged. And that was where I got involved in AA for the first time. And that was the next big impactful thing that happened to me that I am forever grateful for. AA really taught me two things. One was that I had a really bad problem with like splitting thinking, thinking of things in in black and white terms. My parents were really bad about that. My predator was really bad about that. I just, I really picked up that habit of like, people are either all good or all bad. And it affected me being able to examine the people around me in a more realistic way. And it impacted and affected me being able to examine myself in a realistic way. So AA was the first place where I really started working on that. And the other thing that AA really helped me with is that it 
it showed me for the first time that you can have voices, not literal voices, but you can have voices inside of you that don't want good things for you. You can be abusive to yourself. You can have thoughts and intentions that are, don't want good things for you. And so it's not always good to listen to your own voice. It's not always good to listen to your own instincts. And that came into play much later in my life when I finally realized that I was addicted in some ways to abuse or abusive relationships as well. But AA was the first place where I really learned you don't just take every thought at face value as like a freaking gem. And you don't just assume that every instinct you have is just like amazing. You know, there that you should question those things and examine those things and have accountability partners like a sponsor or trusted friend who you can talk to that stuff about. And I really appreciated AA. You know, your fourth step is about taking honest moral inventory of the things inside of you that do need to be worked on. And I think confession of the soul with a, a trusted person can be such a healing part for us or anyone in their journey. So to to really share that stuff with somebody whatever it is, whatever those skeletons in your closet are to share that with somebody and for them to not look at you like you're disgusting and to actually say, I get it. I've been there with pivotal for me. And I've watched it be so pivotal for other people as well. And now when I meet other women who are addicted to uh, a narcissist or an abuser, because that really is where I have more conversations nowadays with people centered around that. I remember that, you know, my first sponsor who did that for me in a different way and sort of like passing that on, passing on, letting people be honest with you and like not judging them, you know, but that was where I started really giving my life over to a higher power and rewiring my brain for the better. I would say practicing life habits, taking accountability every day, looking inward every day and saying like, where did I maybe fail today? Who do I owe an apology to today? Is there anyone I should make amends to? I think that's such a great daily habit to have anyway that I'd never done that before, you know? So it's really exciting and new and cool. And I, I feel like I learned so much through AA. So you grew up in a family with trauma, followed by being groomed and assaulted by a predator, followed by starting a career in a very predatory industry. And you were only 22 by the time all of those things really have happened. And that's a lot to deal with. And now you are an AA and you've moved to a small town. So what were the big lessons for you here at this point, going through everything that you've gone through uh, at this point in your life? What's interesting is because I moved to a really small town, people know who you are there. You know, like what was so neat is when I went into the rooms, people really knew each other's stories. There wasn't the opportunity to lie as much because everyone knew everyone in that. And so in some ways that showed me for the first time, if you go slower in relationships, not just romantic, but friendships as well, if you go slower, you, it gives you more of an opportunity to see through people's actions. I was always listening to their words. I was always listening to the words, but that was the first time where I really started paying attention to people's actions and I could 
because I was always around the same people all the time. It was a very small town. And so you got to watch whether people's actions matched up with their words. And I think that's a, a, a skill that I still use to this day. When I first started getting better at this stuff and really realizing all the predatory things around me, it freaked me out at first because I was just like, how am I going to like recognize bad people and stuff? And the biggest thing I, I really realized was like, it, you know, boom, if you just slow down, you know, you, you don't have to have it all figured out tomorrow. Just don't give them everything in your heart right away. Just don't give them everything valuable and vulnerable inside of you right away and and you're safer. But but that's why I think I was freaking out and I was so scared was because I was still opening my heart immediately. And and this isn't an AA, this is just me as a person, you know? And so through through AA, I think if I remember correctly, there were so many people giving me wisdom all the time down there, but there was a woman who said that, you know, you don't, she was like, you're always rushing into things. You're always rushing into all this stuff. You're never giving yourself time to like stop and think. She was like, just slow it down. Let yourself stop and think before you just do these things impulsively. And so that was kind of a seed that was planted that I learned the rest of that from. But yeah, a huge part of it was just like, wow, observing people's actions. And, and because especially in the modeling industry, you'd meet somebody for like a day and then you'd never see them again. They could tell you any kind of story that they wanted. And with the predator that I was talking to was over the phone. So I couldn't observe any of his lifestyle actions that way either. It was so words-based the whole time. And I think a lot of abusive relationships, the most controlling mechanism they have is their words. So I really started paying attention to actions instead. So after AA, um, what happened, I guess, for the next few years of your life? How were you uh, walking through it? And how did your life improve after that? Yeah, so I saw a huge improvement in the way that I was living my life through my job and my friendship because that had also been an area where I was like massively impulsive. I struggled with sticking with anything for too long, just sort of like regulating myself. I was not very good at that. And so that really helped me learn to work on that while trying to get sober. I mean, getting sober in a small town is not easy. There's like nothing to do after 9 p.m. You are truly left alone with yourself. And I became very aware of the tornado inside of me. I'll say it that way, because I didn't have anything around to distract me that I could almost like blame. It was like, oh, no, that's, that's me. Yeah, laying awake at 11 p.m., that's me. And so there, there, that was the other part of AA is learning self-forgiveness, not living in denial about like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. It's like, oh, no, there's, there's some stuff wrong with me. And I can forgive myself and I can forgive others. So finding, finding that balance of, again, getting out of that black and white thinking where if someone has flaws, they must be all evil. I don't want to see them again. Get out of my life. It, no, learning how to exist with the, the people around me in this small town who are very flawed and I can't get away from them because I'm in this small town. I just have to live with their flaws and live with my flaws and we're all flawed. And it was a whole new experience for me. 
did you worry about what you were going to do in the next phase of your life? Yes. So that also was a huge challenge. Lots of things being worked on all at the same time. As I went from being a model to working at a restaurant, which already challenged, you know, that feeling of accomplishment that I was struggling with. And then I moved from a small town where I was cleaning toilets in hospital. And again, really working on that feeling of accomplishment. And it, it really took years. I'm not going to lie. It took years for me to, to get rid of that. I dealt with it. I chose to be okay with it. But to really actually feel the peace of like, I am a worthwhile person no matter what I'm doing in my life, career-wise, that, that took a while. But I was still working through that um, down there. So I was examining all these things externally, you know, in terms of my job and, and drug addiction, but I wasn't examining my relationship with men because my thought, my very flawed thought process was that you can't get groomed after 18. And so predators and abusive people, this was like my flaw. I didn't know how to look for abuse. And I assumed all predators only, you know, went for like children, predatory type people, I'll say it that way, because I think some abusive people can also be incredibly predatory in their own way. So I wasn't really examining the dating process at all of how I was getting involved with men. I was still going for people who definitely were looking to exploit me sexually, pressuring me. And there were times where I really didn't want to have sex very quickly. And there was, there was pressure. Um, but just sort of, again, like not examining the dynamic of how I did relationships from my end or from their end. And I guess it's just because that had been so normal to me for so long. I was like, okay, maybe I should like not move in with someone right away that makes sense that take that slower you know but for the actual way that i'm the woman or the way that i approach actual sex that's not really a conversation that people have anyway like nobody sits you down and is like hey i'm having sex with somebody you know i'm like you don't discuss that in aa you don't even really talk about it in therapy and when i've watched uh videos by experts on sex addiction later and how women sometimes cope with trauma through sexual issues uh they say that sometimes sometimes talking about like going to sex therapy can be good but either way just like hadn't examined any of it and so uh i was approaching all these relationships still in ways that were very self-exploitive didn't care about my own needs just I always assumed that it was me. I just like always assumed it was me. It's like the relationship fell apart. It's probably me. So I was working a lot on like those things, but not so much the relationship aspect of things. And I'd have people sit me down and logically explain like, hey, you should wait to have sex for X, Y, and Z reasons, even just a couple of weeks, you know, even try and just make it a month, something like that. And for me, it was like, no, because then they're going to leave. Like, they're going to leave, and I don't want them to leave. They're my drug, you know? So that, I couldn't even consider it. I couldn't even consider altering the way that I dated or, or the way that I was a woman. Um, so that's just the way that it was. So after that, I eventually moved back up to my where my family lived. I moved away from that small town. I moved back up to where I was from. And I met a guy when I was 
28. And this was really my bottom. For people who don't know what a bottom is, kind of like an AA term, but it's where you sort of reach the bottom of yourself, where you come to the bottom of the barrel, almost of like the lifestyle you've been living. And a lot of times it's because something really horrible happened that kind of shows you like the worst case scenario of everything you've been in denial about. You know, if you only get like a sprinkling of pain, sometimes you're like, no, this is fine. It's okay. It was long term. But your bottom really shows you, no, all these habits you've been engaging in, this is what it ultimately leads to. So I met a guy. He was really quiet really nerdy. And I remember that I automatically assumed that that made him a safe person because I just sort of had this assumption that dangerous people, I don't know, I, I just somehow thought they were the opposite of that. What that was, I don't know. I don't think I had like image in my mind, but I just didn't think that really quiet, really nerdy people could. It just felt very gentle. So I assumed my, all of my walls went down right away. I was like, yeah, you know, like I'll just do everything with this guy that I normally do. I'll do that cool girl bit where I produce them with my body and hopefully they stay and all that stuff. So I did that with him and I could tell because this had been very normal for me looking back now, like I think a lot of the guys I was involved with were sex addicts and I don't say that casually. There was just a lot of sex demanded of me all time in my relationship that was like, I didn't love them if I wasn't giving them sex like multiple times a day, all throughout. Like even if I was exhausted, even if I was sick, you know, I needed to be giving them sex. And if it didn't happen that way, it was an affront to them. I didn't love them, all that stuff. So sex was very pivotal in a lot of my relationships for how I drained myself and didn't care about my own needs with these guys. So I was doing that with him. And he told me that, you know, he was in the middle of a divorce. It was going to be done too. And, and I was like, yeah, that's cool. And one of my married friends was like, you shouldn't date him until the divorce is final. And I was like, that's stupid. Like, he Betty's divorced, getting divorced. So we started getting involved. And I was, I could tell that it just from the way that he was as a person, I could tell that he wasn't super loyal as a person. And so that stressed me out. And I remember thinking, okay, I just need to start having sex with him like more because if I don't have sex with him enough, he's going to cheat on me and it'll be my fault that he cheats on me. So that I would just ramp it up even more. And I was giving him it like all the time, all the time. And I ended up getting pregnant from us having sex. And even in my first trimester, when I was really nauseous and I was really tired, you know, he was still asking for it the same amount. And I once again felt like, no, I need to keep giving it this amount because otherwise he's going to leave and he's going to cheat on me. And that was just my thought the whole time was like, if he leaves, it's my fault. This is what I need to do to make sure that he stays. And so it was in, in the middle of my second trimester. You know, I, it's hard to even describe how much I gave this guy in terms of like my heart too. He would be so manipulative and so harsh and so mean. And I would give him continual forgiveness. And, and so all these habits that I originally learned with my predator that also 
or ways that I was trying to be the cool girl, I amped up even more with him. I was like the best secret keeper. And I was the best um, at not questioning anything that he said, because that's how he preferred me to be. Whatever he wanted me to be like as a woman, that's what I did. And I wanted to make sure that I did it to the best of my ability. And so I, I burned myself out. I was so drained and tired from how much I was trying to be not like myself and be the most extreme version of a cool girl, really. More than I'd ever tried to be in my life to try and get this guy to stay. And it was in my second trimester after giving him like all this love and all this forgiveness and all this sex and trying my hardest to not be myself and not ask questions because the cool girl doesn't ask questions. You know, the cool girl doesn't care. She doesn't care so much that she she doesn't even need to ask questions. So she's so cool. In my second trimester, I found out that there was no divorce and he had been married for the time. And all of these skills that I've been practicing for how to be a woman had been to my detriment. The lack of asking questions, the lack of an ability to stand up for myself. There'd be times where I'd be like, who are you texting? And, you know, he'd, he'd try and make me feel like that was needy and that was wrong to be asking those things. Um, and so I, I saw in full just in full how all of these things that I'd done for so long because I really thought that was the best way to be a woman, they had been used to manipulate me. And I'd never realized that before, that a lot of these habits that I've been encouraged to have by men and by myself were really very predatory. And a lot of people, if they care about you, they're not necessarily going to ask you to keep secrets in the way that he encouraged me to keep secrets. I will. If they care about you, you're not going to be a secret. And that sounds really obvious, but that, that had never occurred to me before in the way that it did in that moment, that if they care about you, you are not a secret and you don't need to stay in the background. And it was just such an extreme version kind of culminating altogether of, wow, this is really what all of this looks like played out, how, how it is just to help them play their game better. And it was to help him play his game better and to get more sex. And what I ended up finding out in the end is he was still having sex with like a couple other people. It wasn't even just me. Like no matter how much sex I had given him because of sexual addiction, it's never enough. Just like any addiction, it's never enough, you know? And so that was the moment. And then I looked back and I saw all the, so there was a moment, there was a moment when I first met him where he planted a seed and he said he planted the seed of the embarrassment about his divorce and why I shouldn't tell other people about it because we we knew people we we had mutual friends and stuff and I I looking back I realized he planted the seed and then he watched what I did with it for a few months before he pursued me he gave me a couple of secrets he watched what I did with those secrets and when he saw that I was a good secret keeper then he started pursuing me more. And that was where I first realized that people like taste you and they poke at you a little bit to see how you react to these ideas that actually aren't very good ideas for you. And if you go, oh yeah, I'm a good secret keeper or, you know, oh yeah, I'll like totally give you sex anytime that you ask for it. You know, like they, they verbally poke at you to see how you react to these things. And if you show that you're on board the way that I would always try to be on board with everything, that's that's how they figure out your character to see if you're a good match and that was really pivotal for me 
And then I started really examining, okay, how did I react when he verbally poked at me? What types of things? Did I ever defend myself? Did I ever stand up for myself? No, of course not. But I'd never paid attention to that mechanism inside of myself before. And that was the first time where I was like, wow, I never stand up for myself. I never question anybody's story ever. I always took everyone's stories at face value for the most part. And I was like, oh my gosh, I probably should work on that. And it just sort of opened this door to where I was like, why am I the way that I am? And where did I get this idea of like how I'm supposed to be a woman? And why did I even think I was supposed to be giving like sex away all the time like this? Like, because somebody pointed out to me on the suicide unit in a different way, like you're not born as a baby thinking of yourself as an object. And you're not born as a baby thinking that you're a piece of shit. So somebody taught you that. Somebody taught you that to think of yourself as worthless. Somebody taught you to think of yourself as an object. And I, I had that and I started really examining that. And then it just made me really aware of how much porn is like a story. Movies are obviously a story. And this guy had sold me a very convincing story and I didn't question it because it matched the story that I already had inside of myself as well. And so the best thing I could do for myself was start absorbing different stories that are more grounded in reality about love. Part of that is actually talking to people around me who are in healthy long-term relationships, asking them about their relationships. You know, I sat down with one of my married friends one time and I was like, what, what's like one of your favorite memories with your husband? And I was expecting her to say, per my logic, I was expecting her to say like, oh, we, you know, went on this crazy date and did this super exciting thing. Her favorite day with her husband was them sitting inside on the couch one day when it was raining outside, watching a baseball game together. And she really loved that moment because in that moment, she could tell how much he loved her. And it was just how they, they felt together because of the safety and the calmness of their life. And I remember another married friend I asked, I was like, you know, what did it feel like on your first date with your husband? And she was like, oh, it's really boring. And I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, the first three dates were like really boring. And I was like, why would you go back on another date then? And she was like, because I could tell that he was a safe person and that he was going to treat me like, like that he felt safe. She just said he felt safe. And I wanted to actually get to know him as him. And I knew that that boring part wasn't actually him, that it was just going to take a while to learn who he actually was. And that blew my mind too, because I always thought, oh, you know, people on the first day, you know, it's just what I'd always been kind of taught. And then it was re-examining that and going, no, a lot of these predatory abusive people, they present a mask on the first date and they try and convince you that that's who they are. But it does, it takes a while to get to know people. And so I started just absorbing different stories and going to different sources to learn about how maybe women can be and re-examining being a girl in a different way for myself and redefining that in a different way. So, you know, after this experience, listening to you talk for a while about being what everyone else wants you to be and that like once again, you kind of fell into that role. But I've also not heard you say who you are and what you like and all of 
those things. You know, I know all these experiences you've gone through that have made you, you, but there's still this child who grew up with no sense of identity in a lot of ways. So what is your identity now and what are all of those things and who are you? And how did you go about discovering what you actually like? The hardest thing for me and my journey of recovery is figuring out what I like. That has been one of the hardest things for me. Like people, if you have a hobby, you have no idea how blessed you are to have a hobby and to know what you enjoy. Because for so many people in recovery, including myself, it's like, what do I enjoy? You know, and a lot of that comes from, again, sitting still and almost being like what you do in your boredom in like a healthy way. And I had to almost like go back to my childhood and be like, what did I enjoy doing like before my predator came along? I really enjoyed writing. At the time, I was, uh, I'm not saying like I was an amazing writer, but like I was in this writing class that you get through the mail and my teacher said that I was like pretty good at it. And that that was something that I really enjoyed doing before the tornado hit in my life. And I kind of moved away from that. So I started trying to write again. And there's another thing I really enjoy editing videos. And you almost like accidentally fall into learning about this stuff. But it, it's when I stopped trying to obsessively date like a drug. And when I stopped trying to use drugs, and when I had way too much free time, in that boredom, you you do learn what you almost like gravitate towards. As for who I am, I think a lot of that I'm still figuring out. But I know that one thing that I am today that I'm very proud of is that I'm a lot better friend. I was a horrible friend to my friends when I was addicted to men. You know, the minute a drug came along, I would ditch my friends. I wouldn't communicate with them consistently. And they would always be there for me when I was picking up the scraps from the devastation of what had happened. But I'm really happy with the fact that today I can be a really good friend to my friends and not just sort of use them as people to help me clean up the mess and comfort me in the midst of, you know, the ups and downs of of that cycle of addiction. I would say also one thing that if I'm trying to describe who I am, you know, I'm somebody who really strives towards honesty each day. I'm not always great at it, but I strive towards becoming a better person, being more honest with myself, more honest with others. And I'm really proud of that. What I've really learned is the things that I'm proud of today are not big. They're actually really small. But the, the small things that I have took so much effort to get. And people might not be able to see that. They might not be able to see all of the massive changes that have happened in my character over the years that I know, I know what I had to fight tooth and nail through inside of myself and different temptations around me to get to where I can be a good friend and a more honest person today. And that's two of the things that I'm honestly the most proud of, as well as the fact that I care about other people, not just myself. I mean, I always cared about people to some degree, but you say that you care about people and then you only live for yourself. So that's kind of a contradiction. Now I feel like I actually have the ability to like care about other people. And I'm really proud of of learning that skill today too. And having joy. I didn't have joy for like 
so long. I think it's very different from happiness, but I feel very blessed today that in AA taught me this as well. No matter what your circumstances are, you can still feel joy in the midst of pain if you look for things to be joyful about and grateful for. And I'm really grateful for the fact that I feel like I know how to do that today too. So those are some of the things I feel like I am as a person today. And if you had any words of wisdom uh, for everyone listening, what would they be? I guess everything that I've almost already said, I I think it's so rare, you know, in a world that's just like jam-packed full of information today, it can always be like overwhelming all of the different opportunities you have to absorb a new way of thinking about your trauma or thinking about yourself as a person. Um, kind of like what I already said, what's so great is we, we get to decide, you know, we don't have to necessarily let other people decide for us. Um, but yeah, make sure that you keep trusted people around you. They're hard to find. They're hard to come by. They take time to identify. And those are your accountability friends and your your friends in general, you know, like not that anybody underestimates those those people anyway, but um, keep them close. You need them. Well, Spoon, I really want to thank you for being a guest on our show today. We haven't really done episodes in this, in this kind of style a lot where we're kind of going over someone's whole entire life so far in the sense of it's not fully based around a relationship and not fully based around just a family situation and about, you know, the like everything that's reverberated from events that go on and, you know, um, how everything unfolds and your experience of walking through life in an unaware state and then, you know, picking up these skills along the way. And then I'm sure, you know, with you, you you think maybe you have it all figured out, you know, you think you're at a low and then you think you hit that low. And then when you're in that other state, you don't realize that, no, that low is about to come. You need the second boom to happen. Was that why you were just pointing at me? Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, just what you said is like another word of wisdom for everybody. Yeah. And it sounds cheesy, but like to not, I never realized perseverance, you know, like what does that word even mean? But it's that it's thinking you have it finally figured out, feeling that almost like pink cloud excitement, encouragement for yourself, you know, like I'm finally getting it. And then you, you fail, right? And you have to get back up. You do like, it's hard. It's not easy, but keep getting back up. It sounds so cheesy. It's so cliche, but like, it's not easy to do that either. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for being here and just sharing your whole entire life and really exposing like every little thing about yourself for everyone. I know you really just wanted to, you know, help at least one person by sharing your story. And I know you did that today. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, thank you once again, Spoon, for being here with us today. 
And if you want to be a guest like Spoon was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And if you are someone that needs support, we at NarcissistApocalypse.com have a support group. So at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, you'll see a button that says support group. When you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. And inside, you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you. And it is a wonderful group of people on there, and you can share your experiences and make friends as well. So if you need support, join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're dealing with. They have every phone number and email address and every web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you are in. DomesticShelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource and a wonderful organization. So if you need extra support, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. And we here at Narcissist Apocalypse have a new friend to the show, and it is an organization called Shelter Movers, which you can reach at sheltermovers.com. And Shelter Movers helps survivors of domestic violence transition to a better and safer life. And they are currently just a Canadian company, but they're looking to be spreading into the United States. And it is a volunteer organization and a donor-supported charitable organization as well. And what they do is they help coordinate moves for people who are getting out of domestic violence. It's an interesting part of the domestic violence escape process. And they help you get to safety. And they also get your things out of your home and into storage, all of your belongings into storage. And they can do this for your pets as well and your livestock too. It is a wonderful organization. So if you need help from them or just want to donate to them, please go to Shelter Mover. And that is it for today's show. So for myself and Spoon, we hope you have a good night.